Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of God. Well, every now and then, as you're preaching uh, through the books, books of the Bible, you're preaching expository sermons, you come up against a passage that either is going to uh, contain hard statements or a passage that's going to raise big questions. So here we are in a Baptist church, and I'm about to preach on wine. <laughs> that's got to be exciting for you. It absolutely has to be exciting for you. I know it's exciting for me. So here we are at this in incredible story of Jesus and the launch of his ministry. And we find ourselves coming to this story with a lot of questions, almost inevitably. The questions are related to what's happening and especially why. What's happening and especially why. The prophet said that when the Messiah came, why he would be giving uh, uh, sight to the blind, he'd be giving hearing to the deaf, he would be raising the dead, the poor would have the gospel preached to them. Uh, the, the prophets had made really clear that the Messiah, when he came, was going to do some extraordinary things. They never mentioned turning water into wine. And you have to wonder why in the world of all the ways Jesus would launch his public ministry, why would he do this? Now, I know his mother is involved and I know, you know, mothers have pull, right? Normally they do anyway. Uh, mothers have pull. I know that, but there's something more than that going on. So 
We want to see that. In fact, I think we'll take this Sunday and next to kind of unpack it because you'll notice with me in verse 11 that the scripture says that this is the first uh, of the signs that Jesus performed. And that word first is really, really important. It not only means first chronologically, it means first in terms of being primary or essential or key. Understanding this is going to help us understand everything else later. So this is a first or a primary or an essential sign that uh, Jesus worked. So let's go ahead and deal with, with all the fun things first, and then let's get to the passage. First, let's deal with the wine. All right, here we are. In the, uh, in the Mediterranean, in Jesus' day, uh, water was precious. Clean water was hard to find. Wine was an absolute necessity, but there's more to it than just that. Wine in that culture and in many, many cultures, uh, some of the cultures you came from, if you came from Italy or wherever, I, my family's from Germany, uh, were, were always associated with joy. And so it was associated with uh, harvest. It was associated with, with the harvest of grapes. It was associated with God's blessing. And so it was associated with the joy of God providing what you needed for life. And so symbolically, wine always has represented, and you find this uh, in, the New, in the Old Testament, was, was, was symbolic of joy. And so in, in a way, we're not surprised to find in, in Jesus' day, wine at the wedding, joy at the wedding, and all of that, it's important and it carries meaning for us as we make our way through the story. And so, you know, the Old Testament and the New are very, very uh, realistic about, about this, this matter. Uh, the... Uh, the Bible says, be careful. It's, Paul says, for example, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Be careful. The Old Testament w warns that uh, it can be a mocker, it can be a brawler, it can uh, damage your relationships. Be careful. Some of you in this room have had the experience of alcohol abuse, have, had the, have watched the consequences of alcohol. And so the scripture says, be very, 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 very careful. But there, yes, this was real wine. No, this is not grape juice. Okay, let's get on to the next part that bothers people. That was relatively easy. Um, let's get on to the next part that bothers people and that this was a party. And sometimes people will read this story and they will say, ah, Jesus drank and he partied, I can too. And to read it superficially like that is to miss the entire point. So what I need to say to you is, when you read this story of the wedding, what you are not reading the story of a drunken frat boy party. You are not reading the story of a bunch of, of folks who go down a long country road, pull up their pickups by a, cat, a, a river full of catfish. Um, they're not dropping down their tailgate and cracking open the uh, cooler and drinking till the sun comes up. That is not what this is. Let him who hears understand. That's all I'm going to say. So, you know, if you're a college person, it's not a frat party. If you're, you know, from Walnut Cove, we mentioned Walnut Cove last time. We're not talking about that either. We're, we're talking about a Middle Eastern wedding. 
And I think for most of us, we have a hard time understanding exactly what that involves and exactly what that entails. I had a beautiful wedding that I did just before COVID hit between uh, Joseph Bulos and Hiba Sultani. And they were from the Middle East, the believers from the Middle East. I have never been to a wedding like that wedding. I have never been to a wedding. The dresses were beautiful. The people were lively. I have never seen so much celebration in one wedding. And finally, Cheryl and I had to go because we were worn out just watching everybody else celebrate. It was a big, big deal. It, it was a big deal back in the day uh, for this, this couple. They're, they're coming from Little Cana. They, uh, this was probably the biggest day. In fact, it was the biggest day of their lives. Uh, nothing else this special would happen to them. For us, it is one of our most important days. For them, this was the day. And it really wasn't about the couple, it was about their families. It was about two families coming together and everybody who knew them, everybody who was connected with the families would all get invited. If you were connected, you were invited. There was no such thing as shorting the wedding list. And anybody who's been married knows what it's like to come up and say, well, let's invite your friends and mine and you got 500 people and you're going, no way. So you cut it down to 300 mortgage, all your possessions and have a wedding and then you're done. And struggle financially for the next, I don't know how many years. But anyway, this is, this is that kind of, of big, big, big event in the lives of, this, of, of, this, of these families and this couple. In fact, if you were, uh, if you were on the poorer side of things, uh, the wedding would last maybe two or three days. I'm not talking about two hours or four hours. I'm talking about two or three days. As soon as your wine and your food ran out, the wedding was done. If you were wealthy, it could last up to a week. So you can imagine getting invitations saying, well, all right, honey, we have to block off this entire week for this wedding. Uh, that's how serious these things actually were. And so Jesus, we find him coming to this uh, wedding in Cana, small little town, big deal. Uh, everybody is going to remember this wedding. It's, it's deeply associated with each of the families. Jesus shows up as the scripture says, an invited guest to this wedding along with his recently called disciples. And we saw those five of them coming with him now to this wedding. Now, here's what I want you to see this morning is that as we come to this, this wedding, it is much more than we think it is, and it is much more important than we think it is. Uh, this inaugural story shows us that Jesus is neither a drunk nor a monk, but he is a real savior come to real people in the midst of a real life world with real delights and real dilemmas. He was active and engaged in the everydayness of life with everyday people attending weddings and feasts and all those kinds of things. Now, what we're discovering here though, is that this primary or key sign is actually critical for us as we walk with Jesus. It's critical because 
it gives us three pictures. It gives us the picture really of the way the world is, the, 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 the world as it is, the world as we want it to be. And then ultimately it gives us the most powerful picture of the world as it will be one day because of Jesus. And it's all contained in this one story, 12 verses. Every other sign that Jesus does is explained in John with a long teaching, a long explanation. No teaching here, just the sign, but it points to more than we might see or know. So we want to look together at, at, at the three pictures that this story gives us of the world as it is, the world as we want it to be, and the world as it will be because of Jesus. Let's get started. Verses one through five, notice with me how the, the story of the wedding at Cana gives us a picture of the world as it really is. On the third day, verse one, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Huge crisis, we'll talk about that. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour hasn't come. And his mother said to the servants, do, whatever he tells you. Now, John is telling the story as an observer. He was there, he's reporting what he saw and heard. And what he reports is a 30 year old Jesus at the start of his public ministry shows up at a wedding with his newly formed band of disciples as an invited guest. The, the place is little, it's a wee little town, wee little village uh, somewhere in Galilee. This is a big day for this, this couple and it was a reason for celebration. And you know, in a little town like that in Galilee, it was a reason for celebration where there were few things to celebrate. Few things to celebrate. It was also proof. This wedding, the whole enterprise was proof that a family could be responsible, that it could be respectable, that it could be, uh, 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 they could get themselves together, keep themselves together, that they were uh, a family of value and honor. You've got to remember in the Middle East, they have a culture of, uh, of honor and shame. Everything's driven by how others see you. In the West, we don't quite understand that. And so we don't mind being dishonorable because we don't, we don't honor honor very much. But in the, uh, and, and in most of the world, but particularly in the East, the, the honor and shame culture is powerful. And so uh, this, this is a big deal. Their value is on the line. Their honor is on the line. The possibility for shame is real. Jesus' mother is there, and most likely his brothers and other members of the family. So we can imagine the families and the friends and, and uh, the, the notables from the little town are all eating and dancing across the courtyard of the groom's house uh, in beautiful embroidered clothes. And by the way, this is how it happened. The groom got his party by torchlight, took his party over to the, the bride's house, collected her party. They made their way back over to the groom's house and there they had a ceremony and then they had a huge wedding feast. So here is this incredible uh, uh, gathering, a wonderful celebration. Joy is overflowing. And suddenly somebody discovers 
This wedding, full of real joy, by the way, real joy, has run out of wine. Now, anybody aware of that knows exactly what this means. The groom was supposed to pay for all of this. He was supposed to handle this. So immediately he was going to be shamed. His family was going to be shamed. The bride was going to be shamed. You mar you're marrying a loser. You can't even pay for a wedding. Her family is going to be shamed. Shame is going to be everywhere. In fact, they would be known as, for, uh, for the rest of their lives as the folks who had a failed wedding. Every time people would see them from this point forward, it would be what, they would see them with shame. They would see them with even disgust. That, those, that, those families cannot get themselves together. There would be no escaping it. And that's why Mary is so urgent about coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, they have no wine. It's not about the wine. It's about the shame. It's about the dishonor. It's about starting your life together in shame and dishonor instead of honor and joy. Why? Why did, why, does, why did they run out of wine? We don't know. Did too many people show up? Did Jesus' extra five disciples tip the balance? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Was it poor planning? Was it the wishful thinking of, of a poor groom who could only afford so much? I mean, typically what they would do is they would water down the wine anyway. So maybe he was planning on, he'd, he'd done the best he could. He'd watered it all down. He had no idea that there would be that many people. And suddenly it's, it's all gone. We, we, we don't know, but he was the one responsible for it. And it is a disaster. It is not the way you want to start your life. It is not the way you want to live your life. It is not the way you want to be known. So Mary comes to Jesus, her firstborn son, and asks him to fix it. Now, it's important to note that he was, she was likely a widow by this point. Joseph never shows up again. Uh, she's, and she's not asking for a miracle because John says specifically, this was Jesus' first miracle. He'd never done an, a miracle before. We think Mary knows what he can do. Mary knows he's special. She doesn't know how special. She knows there's something unique about him, but she does not know that he can work miracles. She's simply asking him to do something to deal with the crisis. And Jesus' response is puzzling at first. He, he demurs, he says, it's not his business or hers whether this wedding has run out of wine. And what is more, he says, my hour hasn't come. What does that mean? Well, we know from the rest of John that anytime Jesus speaks of his hour, he's talking about the cross, the resurrection, and his ascension to heaven. Everything that he's aiming for, everything that he's heading for, it's all about the hour. Jesus starts his very ministry thinking about the cross. He goes through all of his ministry thinking about the cross. The cross never leaves his mind. He's training and judging and evaluating everything that comes to him on the basis of the fact that he is headed for a cross. This may not have meant a lot to Mary, but it does to Jesus, of course. He knows what acting on his mother's request is going to mean. 
if he actually does something about it like he can do, it will be as God come in the flesh. And if he does that, it means his ministry and his, and his mission are officially and publicly launched. And that means from this point on, his life will dramatically change. Once people find out every needy person in the place will be there asking for a miracle, the full attention of the Jewish authorities are going to be on him. And I love the way Philip Yancey puts it. He says, uh, he puts it so well. He says, if Jesus answers his mother's request, the clock will start ticking and won't stop until Calvary. If Jesus answers his mother's request, the clock will start and it won't stop till the nails are done. If he does this, the clock starts. Mary persists like mothers do. How many of you have a persistent mother? It's Mother's Day, yeah, we got a few. How many of you are persistent mothers? Yes, the Lord bless you and keep you and may his face shine upon you and give you peace. Mary persists like the mother she is and she says, do whatever he tells you and promptly leaves the problem with Jesus. Mary wants Jesus to remedy the problem of a shortage of wine. In his response, Jesus shows that he sees more and he sees farther than she does. Here's the point. The shortage of wine in a season of celebration points to something more. Her asking him to fix it points to something more. His fixing it will point to something more. Jesus knows and he remembers that the prophets described the age of the Messiah as one when the wine will flow as joy will flow freely. Jeremiah 31 says, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. And they heard, their lives shall be like a watered garden and they shall languish no more. And so Jesus acts as we shall see, giving himself as he is to a failing wedding, a wedding that started well, but has run out of wine. And we begin to see something that's critical. This is the story of your life and my life, of your wedding and my wedding, of your world and my world. The real problem that Jesus sees and solves is not a wedding and wine problem. It is a life and joy problem. It's not a wedding and wine problem. It's a life and joy problem. And it is a poignant picture of our lives and our world. The story of our world is the story of a wedding that started well but ran out of Wine ran out of joy, like the wedding at Canaan. Solutions for us are always in short supply and the situation is always serious. And we find ourselves just like Mary did saying, somebody ought to do something. How many times have you listened to the news 
and said to yourself, somebody ought to do something. How many times? Is it once a year? Is it once a month? Isn't it just about every day? Somebody really ought to, somebody really ought to do something. The Cana, Mary gives the problem to Jesus, her eldest son. She knows he's special, but his power is unknown to her. He hopes he can do something. She expects him to do something, though she doesn't know what it could be. Mary, not knowing what else to do or who else to turn to, turns to her human son, Jesus, not knowing really what she's doing, but she's doing what we all do, what all humanity does. And that is looking for a ready human answer to some painful human problem. We're always looking for a savior. We're always looking for a rescuer. Why? Because here's the thing. We live in a world where joy is real. The problem is the real joy we have eventually fails. And the problem is the real joy that we have and love and relish ultimately degrades to the point where we're, we're looking for an upgrade. This is the world we live in. She's looking for a savior. Because for the hundred billionth time on this planet, there was a season of joy that ran out of wine, finds itself in a desperate situation in need of help and in need of an upgrade. The joys we have, real, baby born, it's joy. And even in our Western weddings, it's, you know, how, as, as, as stressed out as brides can be, there's still joy for them in that. There's still joy when parents watch a child marry. I don't know about the bridesmaids, but there. But you know that the joy of a newborn, it starts to fade with 3 a.m. feedings. Messy diapers. Debates over who changed the baby last. Whose turn it is. <laughs> Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Okay, I'm not speaking prophetically here, so y'all hang on. But sooner or later, later those, those, those newborns turn into toddlers that pitch fits at Publix. And they become middle schoolers who tell you they hate you and can't wait to move out.
Any of you been one of those middle schoolers? And the answer is yes. But here's what I want you to see. This is the old human condition. It's always been this way. It's this way now. We live in a world with real joys and we revel in them. The problem we keep having is that our joys don't last. The, the joys we find we can't keep. They run out, they run down, they degrade, they beg for an upgrade, they beg for more, they leave us wanting more. And every time we experience joy, this is what happens every single time, without exception, every single time. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You said, if I could just get that job, if I could just get that degree, if I could just get that person to marry me, if I could just, then I will have joy. Then life will be worth the living. We get that raise, we get that job, we get that person. It fades, degrades, and suddenly we're looking for an upgrade. We discover it as the next story of the wedding at Cana gives us the next picture that the wedding of Cana gives us. And that is, it's a picture of the world as we really want it to be. Look at verses six through 10. Now the scripture says, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and didn't know where it came from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom over, bridegroom to, over to him and said to him, everybody serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you've kept the good wine until now. And I'm amazed. You can hear the joy in his voice. <laughs> you know, joy is, joy is, is simply, uh, is simply uh, delight. Joy, joy is, is uh, uh, delight mixed with gladness. They bring him this and he goes, my. I don't know whether he knew that the wine had run out or not, but what he did know is plain. Whatever had happened, this is better than what was going on before. So John here reports Jesus' decision to help. His hour hasn't come, but the time has come to start the clock. So Jesus says, fill the jars with water and water goes in and wine comes out. And what is more, ordinary wine goes in and an extraordinary wine comes out. The kind that everyone else would serve first if they had it, if they could afford it. Now, we don't know who knew exactly about Jesus behind the scene rescue of the wedding, but now the rescue, the wedding is rescued. Mary knows, the servants know, the disciples obviously know. There's something else though we need to know here. Notice here, 
how deliberate Jesus is with the vessels he uses to solve the problem. Did you see that? The scripture mentions some purification jars, some water jars here. There are about six of these available to him. Every one of them held about nine gallons of water. So uh, you're, 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 you're looking at a lot of, of uh, water and a lot of wine. They're probably set in front of the, uh, of the groom's house. The Jews had a large set of regulations and rituals that they used to show and remind themselves that God was holy and they were not. So in other words, to remind them that something was wrong with them and everyone else, uh, they would, before they came into a, to a time like a wedding, every person would, would come to those ceremonial pots and wash their hands. All the utensils would be washed with this same water as a sign of purification, of the need for purification. So in this way, even at a wedding, with all of its joy, every single attender is quietly reminded of their need for cleanliness before God. In other words, they're reminded of something called sin. We don't like to talk about sin. We would rather not talk about sin. Just hearing the word sin makes a lot of us bow up and get defensive. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to hear about it. But here is this curious Old Testament practice at the beginning of a wedding where there's supposed to be joy. It's like you walk in, you wash your hands, and you're reminded you're a sinner. Curious, don't you think? Something's wrong with you. You're not clean. You need to have your sins washed away and made right. Something needs to be done about what is wrong with you and everyone else. So the original purpose of these pots and the new purpose Jesus gives them provides a clue to one of the meanings of our story. The water for washing the dirt away represents the old ways of Jewish law and custom. The constant reminders we find in the Old Testament of the need to be clean, the need to be made clean, all of the sacrifices, all of the bloody sacrifices to atone for sin, all of this is pointed there. All represents the Jewish law and practice. The fact that Jesus takes these same pots, fills them up with water, and then replaces them with wine is a powerful picture for anybody watching to say the old ways are passing. There are some new ways coming. I'm going to offer a solution, a real rescue to the real problem. Yes, I'm going to, I'm going to, th this water is going to become wine and this wedding is going to be rescued, but I'm offering a real rescue for the real problem. And the real problem is the problem of life and joy. 
I'm offering a real solution for those lives that have run out of joy, for those lives that keep running out of joy. Uh, yes, this, this wedding has run out of wine and I am going to fix it, but look past, look past that. See what I'm doing. I'm not only answering the sad predicament of two families in Cana, but I'm answering the sad predicament of the families of the world. I'm not just trying to help you save face. I'm, I'm, I'm here to help you find joy. Notice that Jesus' solution is not meager, it's mighty. The, the sheer quantity of water becoming wine symbolizes the lavish provision of the answer Jesus brings. And for John and anyone else watching with understanding, filling the jars to the brim not only shows that the need for ceremonial washing is going to be completely fulfilled, but that a new order of joy symbolized by a new wine will come in its place. So notice that in verses 8 to 10, Jesus sends the wine to the master of the feast to taste and approve. And the master of the feast is surprised and he's delighted with what he finds. I love this. He has an unexpected joy. Everybody's probably sitting there wondering when this party's going to run out because these folks don't have much money. You know, how many days is this one going to last? And he's he has this unexpected joy. What? Six jars of this? He calls the bridegroom, the one who was responsible for, for providing the food and the drink, and he says, you've done what nobody else has done. You saved the best for last. Neither the master of the feast nor the bridegroom knew that behind it all was Jesus doing what only Jesus could do and doing it as Jesus always does it, bringing his very best and bringing joy. The joy that Jesus provides is without question far superior than whatever joy the wedding started with and ran out of. And I love that. The joy that Jesus brought to that wedding was far superior to whatever joy was there at the beginning. It always is that way with Jesus, you know. Every single time. So in so many ways, this story of the wedding at Cana has now become a powerful picture of the world we really want to live in. Like the wedding in obscure Cana, hidden away from the great Roman Empire, our world is, is just an obscure planet and a massive cosmos. It's a place where we're always looking for reasons, always looking for ways to celebrate, always dealing with joy degraded and joy that needs an upgrade always looking for something to celebrate because we find so little to celebrate most of the time. The world that we want is a world of joy, a joy that never gets lost, never degrades, and always comes with its own upgrade because it just keeps getting better. 
But this world that we want, this life that we want with such joy is one we can't have because it keeps being stolen by something called sin. And part of what we learn from this story is there is a direct relationship between the presence of sin and the absence of joy. The presence of joy and the absence of sin. Direct relationship. Direct relationship. So we have to talk about sin. Have you ever wondered why the scripture talks so much about sin? Is it, is it that God just has a complex? Seriously, some people think he does. That, that, that he's, he's hypersensitive to sin. Well, he is because he's holy, of course. But, but I think we're missing something here. Why is God so concerned about sin? Because our God, here's the short answer, because our God is a God of joy. And at the end of the day, what he wants for us is the joy that comes from holiness. I've taught you over the years, God isn't concerned so much about your happiness. He is concerned about your holiness. But let me go on and say, he's concerned about your holiness because he wants you to know his joy. He's after joy. If you think that the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament is some kind of cosmic killjoy, you don't know him. You don't know him. And anything he says to you, don't do. It is because he knows that if you do that thing, it will rob you of your joy. You will have no delight in your life and in your living. You can have it for a moment, but it will not last. You can have it for a moment, but it will degrade. You can have it for a moment, but it will fade. And you'll be looking for an upgrade sooner or later and pretty quickly. We can't begin to find lasting joy until we have first understood and confronted the very presence of sin in us. The Bible says we're stained by it. We're full of guilt and full of shame because of it. And what is more, we can't be rid of it on our own. If there's ever going to be a lasting joy for us, there must be a permanent answer for our sin. There has to be somebody who is able to cleanse us, purify us completely, finally, fully, not temporarily with water in a pot. And so here Jesus begins to show those who are watching him in Cana and us that he is that someone. 
that he is for our joy. He is for our joy. Wherever you find Jesus working, joy is sure to follow. Jesus is for our joy. It was of Jesus that the psalmist was speaking when he says in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. Jesus is where we find the joy that lasts. Jesus is where we find the cure for the sin that keeps us from it. Find Jesus and you always find that joy is close at hand. Stay close And his joy will remain. This is why he says later in the book of John, abide in me, stay close to me. These things I'm speaking to you that my joy might be in you and so that your joy might be It's not going to come from anywhere else. Fall. Some of you came in today pretty empty. Some of you came in today pretty twisted up, full of anxiety about something. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe your health is failing. Maybe your child is, is struggling. Maybe your future seems dark. Maybe you're coming down off of a high from some joy that you purchased for yourself, that you won for yourself, that you accomplished for yourself. It's starting to fade and you're kind of losing your bearings.
Some of you have accomplished everything you ever wanted to accomplish, basically. You've got more money in the bank than you know what to do with. And the reality is there are other people in this room right now who want to know your name. They want to be your best friend because they think that if they had what you had, they would be full of joy. And you know and I know that is a lie. But at the end of the day, here is a basic law of life in a world governed by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The presence of sin means an absence of joy. But the presence of joy in Christ means an absence of sin unconfessed, undealt with. Now you and I will fall and we will fail. But when we practice ready confession, dealing with sin, when we begin to see that sin is what robs us of our joy, and we have the courage in Christ to face it and deal with it, to, the joy begins to grow and increase every single time. So don't you love this picture? I mean, seriously, don't you love this picture? Jesus bursts on the scene. He fills up like 150 gallons of wine. And I know this is so odd for a Baptist preacher, but I'm just stay with me because it means joy. <laughs> But he comes on the scene, he fills up these pots with wine. And what he basically says right out of the gate is, I am here for your joy. That's why I've come. So let's have a party. Oh, we'll get to that next week. There is one coming. <laughs> so now with uh, heads bowed, eyes closed, as we bring our, our time together around the word, I want to speak especially to believers this morning. And I, I want to ask you, if you would, to pause with me and consider, would you, the state of your joy. The state of your delight. The state of your world as you see it. Oh, loved one. Jesus says to you, what he said to that poor couple in Cana, I'm here for your joy. Please, please, don't derail it by trying to find it somewhere else.
Here's the truth. Every real joy we experience in this world ultimately has its root in Jesus, but we will never enjoy it until our joy is Jesus. Children are not really a joy until you first found your joy in Jesus. Any other good thing, and all good things come from the Father, ultimately have their anchor, ultimately point to Jesus. So whatever it is you're living, looking for, longing for, the simple call of Cana is find it in him who saves the best to last and keeps giving without stopping. Jesus. Jesus. There are those here today who feel the pain of emptiness deeply right now. It is Jesus who heals that emptiness and fills it. Jesus alone. By his death on the cross, he removes our shame and our guilt. By his death on the cross, he fills us with a joy that is known only to him by him. And he longs to give it to you. And you can receive it when by faith you take all of your life, all of your sin, all of your failures, gather them up and bring them to him. He'll do the cleansing. He'll do the purifying. He'll do the making new. He'll do the healing. And he's ready to do that today. God of joy. Savior who gives joy. Spirit who makes joy real. We bow in your presence this morning and Suddenly we find ourselves lifted up, sobered by the reality of the way our world really is, that no one and nothing can really finally give us joy, but delighted in the idea that, Lord God, joy is the gift you give us but giving us a way into your presence. May today there be believers with fresh commitments to seeking the joy only you can give. And may today be the day when others give you all of their lives and find the true joy doesn't fade, doesn't degrade, never needs an upgrade for it is always upgrading itself anchored as it is in Jesus 
pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen, amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.